It's the 3rd of November, 2017, and this is episode 347 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Changing up the order here. I know, right? I was just <laughs> thinking about that. I just Usually I'm first. <laughs> you want to you wanna redo it? Give no, me. no, it's fine. I, hey, everybody, variety is the spice of life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, today we're talking about a couple of different topics here. Bitcoin broke $7,000 today, and it was only breaking $6,000 a couple days ago. And I was talking with uh, some of the folks that I deal with in Canada, and in Canada, uh, prices on local Bitcoins in Canadian dollars are over $10,000. So, <laughs> wow. So, who that's knows a how- significant psychological number, you know, the 10,000 number. And it, as it creeps up toward it, I think it, it may gain some momentum. I mean, we're, we always say, like, we don't know. <laughs> Nobody really knows, like, what causes the price, right? We can speculate, but it's a decision that's made by the the market or the crowd. But it is really interesting to watch it hit all-time highs and how people react and like how these things go. So I think it's great. Despite all the naysayers, you know, and all the funerals that have been had for Bitcoin, (laughs) it's not dead yet. (laughs) Well, pretty soon, withdrawing or sending a single Bitcoin itself will be a suspicious activity. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You're gonna have to declare it (laughs) under FATCA or something. (laughs) Because of the $10,000 limit uh, for the suspicious activities report filing requirement, maybe the transmitting one Bitcoin itself will be a SAR. We used to talk about denominating Bitcoin on the really early shows, like, is it time to switch to bits? And this is when Bitcoin was like $10 yeah. or something. <laughs> so what do you guys think? Like, it seems like nobody has switched to small talking about Bitcoin in like bits or millibits or anything like that. Have you guys had any thoughts about that? Or have you tried to adjust your own perception of that? In my experience, the wallets have all switched to millibits, but all old school Bitcoiners I know get enraged by that and switch yeah. the UI back to Bitcoin. Yeah, I I, I do that. <laughs> I guess I'm one of those. But yeah, there is something about like when you've started, like when you first came in and learned about it in Bitcoin, you don't want to change from that. Back in my day, we thought of gold by the kilo. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, you mentioned that $10,000 is like a psychological barrier. It's been interesting, right? Because I have some Bitcoin that I have for my mother-in-law. And the question has been, well, at what point is a good time to actually capture some of the value that's been created there? And for me, that actually is a question that's getting harder as time goes on rather than a question that's getting easier. Because when Bitcoin for a long time was kind of trading in a range, right, then you could be like, all right, well, I have a basic understanding of what's happening with the market, right? Like I can look at the price. I see the price has been this high. It's been this low. So based on those kind of numbers, I can figure out what what is reasonable in my situation. But because now we're at these kind of not only all-time highs, but we're continuing to spike up, there are two things that it brings to mind. Uh, one is maybe the thesis is being validated that we've had all along, right? Because the whole idea here hasn't been that Bitcoin's going to go to 10,000. It's that Bitcoin's going to be like a global settlement currency and is going to, you know, even if it captures some just very small percentage of the gold market or the global remittances market or kind of the e-commerce market, really any of these things, single digit sort of percentages, 
if it captures any of that stuff, then $7,000 or $10,000 is a total drop in the bucket. And in a couple of years, we'll look back and say, wow, that was a great deal of $10,000. So that's an, an interesting thing that's happening for me is that like, as the price is going up to these all-time highs, I no longer know when I should sell anything myself, buy anything myself, or advise anybody else to do the same who are, in some cases, kind of, you know, family stuff relying on me to help them make those decisions. So I, I'm, I'm kind of curious, not necessarily if you guys are selling anything, but how you're thinking about the price now. Like, are you thinking, oh, this is a high price relative to where we've been? Or are you thinking this is validation for kind of the broader ambitions that we have for Bitcoin in the hundreds of thousands of dollar range? I think of it as validation for the value of Bitcoin, but I've always believed in the value from the very beginning. And I think through all the ups and downs, like over the last several years, the same advice applies. HODL, yeah. right? Unless you really need to sell for some reason, like if you need money and or if you need liquid cash or whatever, and you can't pay for something with Bitcoin directly, or depending on your situation, you might need to liquidate some. But if you don't need to, then just sit tight and don't worry about it. I know a lot of people who are thinking that if they're not like trading different cryptocurrencies, they're missing out, like they could be making more money. But I don't know, playing that game, you can't always beat the market and you can't always beat holding on to it and just calming down and <laughs> letting the storm, the chaos kind of brew around you and just being the calm in the storm and, and hodling. <laughs> Here's a story. I know I have a friend who works in the banking industry, actually. He found out about Bitcoin from me a couple of years ago and he bought a Bitcoin for each of his daughters. Mm. He's like really excited, like whenever the price reaches an all time high, but I think he's just going to keep holding it until his daughters go to college or whatever. And maybe it'll be able to give them some college payments. I don't know. When we were looking at kind of the market earlier this year, we were saying, well, you know, even though the price is really high, it's actually doesn't look like a bubble because it hasn't gone parabolic. And if you look at the kind of past cycles, you saw this, you know, like 10 times higher than it had ever been before sort of thing happen. And so from that perspective, you know, 10000 or $13,000 actually does wind up looking like a target, but that would be a target at least as far as I can tell, if we were doing a repeat of the last cycle and the last cycle involved a very big crash at the end of that, right? So it, like the market finally overheated and blew up. So these $300 days, $500 days, like that seems like that actually may be the precursor to that. So just like always, there's no right answer here, right? We don't know what's going to happen. But the other thing that's been interesting is the continued embrace of the mainstream financial industry, uh, basically everybody but Jamie Diamond. Well, there's people who think that he's doing it on purpose to crash the price oh, sure. and buy low. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll yeah. give Jamie the benefit of the doubt and say that he actually believes what he's saying. I mean, regardless of what he believes, a lot of other people seem like they've come around and a lot of skeptics seem like they've softened as kind of the price has gone up and they feel like the market has kind of proven them wrong as time has gone on. Andreas isn't here, but you know, we've often talked about that kind of AOL moment. Maybe this isn't that though, because this is still not normal people. This is financial professionals and, and you know, institutional investors and things like that. Jonathan, in, in New York, I mean, how are things going? What's kind of the, how is the, the ecosystem you engage with changed over the last, you know, three or six months? First, I would just like to say to Stephanie that I believe selling your Bitcoin, putting out FUD, and then buying Bitcoin when it, the price goes down is referred to as a Mike Hearn. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. So, um, Jamie Diamond was Mike Herning. Let's get that into popular usage. As it relates to the New York market, uh, it's just finance people have gone full crazy for Bitcoin. And every day you go to an event and 90% of the faces are faces you haven't seen before. 
I actually had a bit of an experience myself yesterday. I was watching Periscope and noticed that Scott Adams, the creator of Gilbert, was in New York and that he was doing a Periscope. And I go, oh, I, I, what's up with him? And as I was listening, because he, he had a new book that just came out, as he was talking about his new book, he was talking about the structure of his token sale for a project <laughs> that he was doing. Uh, Scott Adams, the Dilbert guy, is doing a token sale. So if you know, a couple weeks ago, he wrote, he wrote a Dilbert on ICOs. And that's kind of like, when do we know we've hit peak ICO? It's like, not only is there a Dilbert on ICOing, but the Dilbert guy himself said, wait a minute, I got an ICO. So of course like a proper Bitcoiner, I drop everything that I'm doing, see where he is and take a taxi to immediately get to him. And he was doing book signings for his new book. And I get up to him after the Periscope is over and he goes, hey, um, are you here to get the book signed? And I go, I don't have the book. He's like, oh, that's all right. Do you have like a notepad or something you want me to draw Dilbert on? They go, no, I'm sorry. I don't want that either. He's like, do you want a selfie? And I said, no, I'm sorry. I actually don't want that either. He goes, what exactly did you want? And I said, I hear you're doing an ICO. (laughs) And he goes, ha ha. So I ended up chatting with him for about 10 minutes. And uh, I was just taken aback that, you know, it's just like we hear these celebrity tokens and these celebrity blockchains from the endorsement perspective. But I really do think Dilbert ICO is the first time a celebrity themselves is the one conducting the token sale. Well, you know, that's interesting because to be fair, I know that Scott Adams has been following Bitcoin and cryptocurrency for years now. It's not like he just suddenly found out about ICOs in the last year. I think he's been watching it for a while. At least he's been tweeting about it. Do you guys remember Kanye decided to do a coin, like an altcoin back like several years ago? That was before ICOs even existed. Stephanie, not only do I know about it, but I still have my Kanye coin paper wallets eagerly (laughs) waiting for the blockchain to go back live so I can spend my Kanye. Oh my gosh. Is is nobody running a node or something anymore? What happened? Well, so hang on, hang on, hang on. To be fair, the the I think it was called Kanye. And yeah, it was. Right. So that was not an official Kanye project. And it was actually something oh. that that was why it shut down. They got a cease and desist. Oh, yeah. He didn't want them to do it. Oh, that's right. Okay. Exactly. Never mind. Then. So, so, th- so, yeah. So that may have been, may have been the first bootleg you know, celebrity <laughs> coin, celebrity branded coin. You know, and it's kind of interesting, actually, because the financialization of a lot of this stuff really is happening in the real world. It just takes a gigantic amount of money and a gigantic amount of compliance to do it. The thing that comes to mind immediately is a portion of the Eminem uh, library, the uh, the musician, uh, the rapper Eminem, a portion of his library is essentially going to be IPO'd. Um, and then the royalties will be paid out to that. So again, that's an idea that's been kicking around in tokens for the last, I don't know, four or five years. And I think this is the first time that we're seeing something like that. We saw the Bowie bond before, which was a bond issued by David Bowie. But this offering is a little bit different. And somebody's trying to do something really similar with the Wu-Tang unreleased album, too. They're trying to do an ICO to raise money so that they can buy the unreleased Wu-Tang album. And they can't commercialize it, but they could make it uh, so that everybody could listen to it who winds up purchasing the, the thing. So there, you know, we're definitely starting to see like ideas it's like I bought registered Wu-Tang coin on a uh, counterparty, I think three and a half years ago and a bunch of other stuff like that. And a lot of these projects that were just kind of like pipe dreams at the time are actually starting to happen now. So it's cool to see that sort of thing going on. But yeah, as far as like a celebrity actually doing an ICO, I don't know if you consider 
the Dilbert guy is celebrity, but you know, but he definitely has more visibility than kind of the average thing. And he has credibility that's coming from outside of the financialized space, which is particularly interesting to me. In the context of what constitutes a celebrity, he is one of the most popular cartoonists of all time. And he used to, before he started talking about Donald Trump, make millions of dollars a year on the public speaking circuit. So that sort of, to me, is like when, when you can go and fill out a theater and have people pay you to do that, I call you a celebrity. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I would say there might be more people who are familiar with Dilbert than some of those artists. <laughs> <laughs> I was just shocked by that. And the timing is just so, it's so funny how quickly these things sort of come together. Because just a couple of days ago, the SEC actually put out an announcement reaffirming that celebrities endorsing ICOs could be illegal. Actually, it was yesterday. It was November 1st. So the SEC affirmed that if a celebrity promotes or advocates an investment or a stock without full disclosure, that that could be strictly illegal. So it's sort of it's sort of funny that like on the heel of this announcement, you also see celeb an actual celebrity themselves or or someone in that sort of range of, of persons conducting a token sale. Right. So that announcement seems like it's probably coming on the heels of like the Paris Hilton endorsement that we saw a couple of months ago and the Floyd Mayweather endorsement and the Mayweather endorsement in particular, after they had finished their sale, it came out that they had done a very significant non-disclosed discount that was given to a lot of people and about half of the funds had been sold for substantially underneath what was supposed to be the best price. So like there's definitely a lot of kind of shifty stuff that's going on with these things. And again, this is an area where the SEC, you know, like I'm not in favor of them determining who gets to invest into things, but you can see that there is actually some value to at least putting out this sort of clarification and saying, if you're a celebrity and you decide to do this, understand that there are risks associated with not being completely honest about you know, the fact that you're being paid for this. So I don't know, I guess I'm softening in my old age to uh, regulation. <laughs> softening to regulation, denominating everything in Bitcoin. I think we're getting old. <laughs> so we took a month off from the show and that was largely because of me. Like I said, two of the weeks that we were gone for the four weeks was because of the fires up in California. But the prior week before that, and actually the one before that as well, I was spending a lot of time with our lawyers at Tokenly. And we had been prepping to do essentially to launch Token FM and to do a token sale um, and ICO essentially that was built around that application, which actually functions and, and would have uh, you know been working kind of at the moment. I'm not going to get into too much of why we've decided not to do Token FM in the way that we were planning on doing it before. But the thing that's worth mentioning here just is that looking through the paper that Scott Adams, the Dilbert guy, has put out here and looking at kind of how he's using the instrument uh, it further reinforces to me that nobody knows how to do this. People are trying to follow best practices as they see them in the industry, but those best practices are built on basically nothing. They're built on people being successful. Yeah, everybody's making it up as they go right. along. Well, I mean, that's the thing is that it's not that everybody is making it up as they're going along. It's that the people who did it first made it up as they went along. And then other people who have come along after that and saw that opportunity, they say, aha, that must be the right way to do it because they were successful with it. But the problem emerges pretty quickly and what we ran into, part of what we ran into, it looks like all of these things, almost all of these things are going to be securities at the end of the day. And so a SAFT, right? So the simple agreement for future tokens, uh, you might not have heard about that yet. It's been bouncing around for the last couple of months. 
Um, it was the mechanism by which Filecoin used to do their fundraiser. And the short version of what a SAFT is, is if I can't sell you tokens because those tokens don't do anything yet, and if I sell you a token that doesn't do anything, then it's a security. Then I can sell you something that is a claim on a future token, and that claim will be a security. So a SAFT is itself a security. But the tokens that you eventually get at the end of the process, the idea here is that you wait to give people the tokens until you've actually launched whatever the project is and the tokens actually function. And then the line of thinking here is that if you've done all of that, if you have a token out there that's a utility token that actually does something, then that makes it ambiguous whether or not it is a security or if it is a utility token, because nobody really knows the answers to these questions. Lawyers are making tons of money off of speculating and guessing, but it's kind of a moving target. That's interesting because that's kind of what you were afraid of all along or thinking all along is that all these things were going to end up considered securities. And I think from the beginning, you've kind of operated that way with Tokenly as trying to make the tokens utilitarian as much as you can. Well, yeah, so that that's right. That was kind of what we thought. And so, okay, so I'll just get into Token FM just a little bit here. So the whole idea with Token FM was it's a streaming platform for content creators where they can upload content, uh, have it pushed to a blockchain, and then they can easily create tokens as products that represent access to the to that content so that people can either pay per stream or they can just buy one of the tokens directly from the artist or from somebody who purchased it from them and then access that content. And there's a lot of other stuff that goes into it, but that's kind of the in a nutshell idea. And the whole idea here was that the people who have the ability to create tokens which are valuable tends to be very different from the people who actually want to create tokens and see the opportunity. And so if we give content creators the opportunity to create tokens without requiring any sort of technical expertise or the need to even acquire cryptocurrency in order to do it because we abstracted all of that away, then that would make it very, very simple for big brands to come in and to just do it because there's nothing holding them back and no technical challenge anymore to do that. One of the problems we ran into with Token FM and the reason why we haven't launched it yet is because it actually turns out we created too complete of a solution. So there are two parts of the business. There's one side that helps people to create tokens, and that's like an infrastructure service that we provide. And then the other side is actually operating the platform on which those tokens are valuable. If we do just one of those things, if we either just operate the infrastructure or just operate the platform, then we're fine. But if we operate both of those things, then it's akin to us. I think the exact example used was selling bulk fertilizer and then also renting a space where people can create bombs. <laughs> if we just sell fertilizer, <laughs> then we'd have no knowledge of what where they're using it, what they're doing with it, anything like that. So we have no responsibility. If we just rent them a place but don't sell them fertilizer, then we have no idea what they're doing in that place and we have no responsibility. But if we provide both of those services to them, then we have a responsibility and thus liability in a legal sense to know that what they're doing is right. And if they do something that looks like they're committing fraud, like say, go on to Twitter and say, buy my tokens now because tomorrow they'll be worth $10,000 when in fact that's not at all going to happen, then we wind up exposing ourselves to that as well. So I've gone off into the weeds here, but there's so much complexity once you really get into this stuff and the legal system itself. Like if you have a project like Bitcoin that has no company associated with it in kind of an ownership sense, and it's just this kind of community collaborative project where there's nobody who really has the ability to change things or the ability to take the money or control things, then those types of systems, I think, are very hardened against what's coming. But for everything else, like almost everything else. What it comes down to is that people are buying these because they want to make money. 
And if people are buying these because they want to make money, then they are basically securities. I bring all this up because reading through what Scott Adams is doing, he describes the SAFT, which is the vehicle that they're using, as not a security. And that's incorrect. A SAFT is, by definition, a security. So even in places where these things are actually being launched and it's, you know, like nobody really knows what they're doing. They're just following kind of what they think are best practices. And so that, again, is a situation that's totally unsustainable. It's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. Yeah, I guess that's the risk the early people in the space take is just sort of figuring it out. And if they end up running afoul of of laws or whatever and get scrutinized or attacked for that later, that's part of the risk of being an early person in the space and, you know, not having established best practices to fall into. Some people are going to be rewarded for that risk, for taking on that risk, and maybe some people won't, but a new space and that's put the territory. It's, it just seems like this is a moving target right now. It really brings me back actually to something, uh, Jonathan, you and I talked about a couple of years ago, which is the fact that one of the killer apps for cryptocurrency in general is regulatory arbitrage. It's it's not that you can't do any of these things. It's not that you couldn't go out and sell something that looks exactly like a token, not using a token. It's that the regulators are already wise to that scheme. Whereas with what's going on in cryptocurrency right now, it's been kind of ambiguous for a long time. And so people who are taking kind of the opportunity and people who have taken the opportunity, maybe there is a cost. Maybe it's just a cost that wasn't entirely clear at that point, but is becoming increasingly clear as time goes on. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by EasyDNS.com. EasyDNS is the only domain provider that takes Bitcoin and Ethereum. Blockchain startups are challenging the status quo. When yours attracts attention, you need to know that your domains will be safe. EasyDNS loves blockchain, and they're a stickler for due process. As a valued client, you are leading a revolution that Easy wants to be a part of. So, when it's time to register or renew your domains, remember, EasyDNS is the official domain provider for letstalkbitcoin.com and a great place to be. Back to the show. So I don't know if you guys heard about this, but there was a controversy recently because the Pirate Bay website was running this script that was causing people who went to their site to mine Monero and it would go to the Pirate Bay. And the controversy was really not that they were doing it, but because I think a lot of people who use that website would support, you know, supporting it somehow. It is like kind of like a public library. So how are they going to like fund them for operations and stuff like that? But the fact that pissed people off was that they didn't tell anybody about it. So <laughs> people were mad when they found out that, hey, their computing power was being uh, sort of exploited to mine Monero for the Pirate Bay's profit. But the thing they were using to do it was this plugin called CoinHive. And I actually looked into CoinHive a little bit and and found out that it's actually quite cool. And of course, like if websites are honest about using it, it could be like a really useful tool for monetization of basically eyeballs on websites without ads or anything like the, the traditional methods that have typically been used to monetize websites. So I thought we could talk about it a little bit. Now, CoinHive, if you look at the site, it is only to mine Monero at this point. And there's a reason they do that. I think it's be because of the the mining algorithm for Monero. And not only can you have somebody use a little bit of their computing power to mine Monero for your website if they're just on the website, if you use their JavaScript, but you can also have somebody verify CAPTCHA by doing some hashes. And you can also have someone follow a link by doing some hashes. You can create these these short links and have them do hashes. So as you can see, it starts to 
create this picture of ways that it would be possible to monetize a website, multiple different types of websites. You know, if you have a blog or if you have a website that people contact you through, you could do, put it on the contact form. And it's right there. Like if you put it on the the CAPTCHA, it'll say like verify with CoinHive. So people know that they're doing some hashes in order to send you an email through your contact form. And I think that's pretty fair, right? It's like, it's free to them. They don't care, right? But they, you know, they're going to have to do a CAPTCHA anyway. Might as well have some hashes attached to it. And it monetizes the website, at least a little bit. They say on their FAQ something like, is this going to work, is the question. And the the answer was like, technically, yes. Financially, probably not. <laughs> like right. You're not going to make a, a ton of money out of this. I'm on their website right now, and the computer I'm talking with is doing 18 hashes a second. <laughs> yeah, they have this little play pause button where you can, you can see it doing the hashes and things like that. I think my phone was, I went to their website on my phone, I think it was doing like about that many, like 12 or 16 hashes per second, <laughs> something like that. And I said, oh, cool. I see how this works. So as long as websites tell people about this, that they're monetizing their website this way, it it seems to me like it's kind of a win-win. Now, the other interesting tie-in was that there was this Brave browser that was made by one of the former creators of Firefox, I think, Mm -hmm. that did a huge ICO earlier this year. They raised like $35 million in in like a matter of hours. With the basic attention token. Yeah. Okay. So you know about this and we, I think we've talked about it on the show before, but it was wildly popular and, you know, they raised a ton of money, probably more than you would ever need to develop a browser, but it was supposed to monetize websites in a very similar way using like Bitcoin micropayments, I think was what, what the browser was based on. Yeah. Stephanie, you remember, um, you remember Chris Ellis's project pro tip? Yes. It's almost identical to that. It is basically pro tip built into the browser and then publishers opt into it. There's also some similarities to what we did with LTB coin kind of in the early days too. So I think it's a very interesting project intellectually. I've been a little surprised that they haven't made faster progress than they did. I was sort of expecting to have a browser that I could use that actually would have publishers in it. And I have tried the browser. It's just doesn't really seem like it's it's not compelling enough for me to switch to yet. Well, I mean, CoinHive might be the killer of Brave browser. Like, you might not even need a whole new browser. <laughs> you know, you might be able to just do it with uh, plugins on websites that don't require anybody downloading a new browser. I think you mentioned an interesting point, which is that from a mo- monetary perspective, you're actually not going to make hardly any money with this. <laughs> well, unless you have a really popular website. If you have a very popular website, then yes, you can do that. But you're not going to make a lot of money with other methods if you don't have a popular website either. You know, it's true. You're not going to make a lot of money with ads if you don't have a popular website. It's all about the eyeball. But this is at least able to monetize eyeballs that don't buy anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it doesn't have a cost to the the onlooker, to the eyeball. (laughs) So back in the day, before we got started with Let's Talk Bitcoin, and one of the prior shows that I worked on uh, back in 2012, we actually did exactly this. It wasn't with Monero at the time. It was with, I forget what the thing was even called, but it was the exact same type of plugin, except it mined Bitcoin back in the day when people were using GPUs. And so it was still not very easy to mine Bitcoin with CPUs, but it was possible. And did you tell people about it? Were you honest and upfront? We did. We did tell people about it. It still had a a wildly negative reaction associated with it because at the time that I don't think it was sophisticated enough to actually not take up to 100%. 
event. So you'd have people pop on with their laptops and suddenly the fans would kick on and start going like crazy. So yeah, there were definitely bugs with it. And again, like you said, like it was so small that it didn't really matter to us because the amount of people who were actually using it at that point were, were very small. I mean, the Bitcoin community was tiny at that point. So our little, you know, Bitcoin podcast pre Let's Talk Bitcoin was, was very small. So I think the real question is I'm, I'm looking at an Ars Technica article and it says that, um, do, 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 so far, at least 500 websites running the WordPress content management system alone have been hacked to run CoinHive mining scripts. So this is actually a way not just for people who are actually running websites, but for hackers to start monetizing their hacks by essentially putting this code in and then letting people mine for them. So it's kind of like the botnet attacks we used to see, except now it's actually happening on websites. There was another one, too, that I think it was Bitcoin mining botnets that were being created where where people would inject the code into WordPress websites and stuff like that. Well, my favorite example was in the video game uh, pirating scene a couple of years ago where people would be the first to crack a video game so you could play the pirated copy and they would include a Litecoin miner into the install so that while you're installing the game, it's mining Litecoin for you. And then as you're playing the game, you just think, oh, well, I'm using my CPU, whatever. It's also using it to mine Litecoin. Hmm. And it, from a, like a, a philosophical perspective, is, is kind of quaint because how angry can you be about violating someone's property rights on the unauthorized usage of software while you're pirating <laughs> the video game? <laughs> like, whoa, who would have thought that this guy who pirates software would have, with author unauthorized access, would pirate software on unauthorized access used my hardware? So it had this sort of like perfect karmic uh, circle to it that had me enjoy the story. Uh, I was like, I'm, I'm okay with with this. I just thought it was a novel use of a quid pro quo where it's like, look, I'm not going to get money out of you, but I know you have the hardware to run this video game. So if you want to use my crack, you're going to run Litecoin for me. Yeah, that's a cool idea. But I think that it continues to emphasize the point that I'm making, which is that this actually winds up making a lot more sense for people who are doing it illegitimately rather you know, for illegitimate purposes than for people who are doing legitimate purposes. In that same article on Ars Technica, Adblocker AdGuard recently reported that 220 of the Alexa top 100,000 uh, sites serve crypto mining scripts to more than 500 million people. And in three weeks, they estimate that the sites generated a collective $43,000. So $43,000 sounds like a big number. But we're talking about actually fairly popular sites and a lot, a lot of people who are using this. It only comes to $195 per site over the course of three weeks. If you are the person who installs all that stuff maliciously, well, you just made $43,000. But if you're the operator of a site choosing to do this and potentially incurring the negative press cost of putting something like this on if you're not communicating about it properly, well, that's close to $200. Like if you're a top 10 website, then maybe you make those $43,000 all yourself. And then this is a great deal. But really, I think what it comes down to, Stephanie, is the point that you are making, which is that there's nothing wrong with this idea. What's wrong is if you don't properly communicate about it and then people feel like you're stealing from them. But if you're just like, hey, there's no ads on here because this is happening, click this button to turn off the miner and turn on the ads 
then I think that a lot of people would choose to keep the ads off and to have a portion of their CPU being devoted to something like this. I have a 1080 graphics card. Imagine if I could go on Hulu and then have an ad free experience, but have them be, you know, fully using my graphics card for the period that I was watching the television show. I mean, so I guess this is interesting from that perspective, which is that even though it doesn't actually make sense for businesses right now, there actually is a path forward. And really, it's all about mainstream adoption and about the type of users who are going to actually see, oh, I could I could make money by adopting this and then actually doing so in a way that's kind of responsible and fully communicative. Mm, I guess when you tried it with your old podcast, Adam, people just weren't ready for it. <laughs> well, the, I think the technology a lot uh, really to a large part wasn't ready for it. And we just did it for as an experiment. It was on for about two episodes of the five episodes I think that we did. <laughs> so, uh, you know, definitely weren't big at the time. You know, it's interesting to see these ideas come around, right? Because that's true of so many things. So many of these ideas have been kicking around for four, five, six years. And I think that uh, we just passed the, I guess that's another milestone yesterday, uh, I believe was the nine year anniversary of the publishing of the original Bitcoin white paper. Mm -hmm. Wow. So I mean, it's <laughs> almost 10 years. Yeah. I mean, so it's almost 10 years. So in some way, that's like a huge amount of time. And in other ways, holy crap, like we're so close right now to kind of mainstream financial adoption. Even if it takes another 10 years, that's still 20 years to completely change the global economic system and kind of rewrite the rules for what is money. And and just because you're right doesn't mean that it'll succeed. One of my favorite like historic press releases is right idea, wrong time, wrong people was in 1999. Blockbuster and co-partnered with Enron announced that they were going to be streaming movies over the internet. Wow. So they did a proof of concept venture where Enron and, and Blockbuster got together because we know the, the synergistic powers that those two bring to the table. Mm -hmm. um, and they wanted to do streaming video over the internet and realized that a it didn't work it couldn't work and that they were both really bad companies that's interesting yeah sometimes having the right idea the, the right response is just to wait a little longer so our final topic for today is again one that we've talked about a number of times cryptocurrency can be thought of as like a global opt-out so there are some places in the world like zimbabwe and venezuela where this seems like a really good idea and for most other people they kind of see it as an investment because their their current local currency is stable and good to go one thing we haven't really talked about so much is how that global opt-out uh, also applies to nation states in the past we've we have discussed kind of how there's the swift system and there's the global banking system that is really under the control of the u.s government and allies of the u.s government and how they use that control to sometimes punish other countries through sanctions and things like that. One of the things about Bitcoin, though, is that it's borderless. doesn't matter where you are. doesn't matter who you're sending it to. You can't censor it. So essentially, on the one hand, you've got the SWIFT system, which is a censorable permission-oriented system. And then on the other hand, you have cryptocurrency, which is permissionless and uncensorable and under most circumstances. So it has been unsurprising to me to start reading about both North Korea and most recently Iran looking at Bitcoin as a way to bypass the SWIFT system uh, to bypass essentially the global financial system that they've been locked out of for the last four or five years and to start doing international remittances really around those sanctions. So this is not something that's legal in the U.S. This is not something I'm advocating anybody do, but it's something that is has come up for me because, I mean, two years ago, three years ago, we actually had a shoemaker in Iran 
reach out to us about doing a sponsorship of the show. And we went through the whole process and con- contacted the State Department and contacted everybody and we're like, hey, can we actually take this sponsorship? And the answer came back, no, you can't take the sponsorship because there are these sanctions on Iran. So even though, you know, we're somebody who we don't really care, uh, you know, outside of our legal obligation and the shoemaker was a fan of the show and, you know, it seemed like he had kind of cool looking products and we thought it'd be neat to have such kind of a faraway sponsor from where we are geographically. We weren't able to do it from a legal standpoint. So the article on Zero Hedge is entitled Iran is preparing infrastructure for Bitcoin adoption. And uh, just a quick ex- excerpt from the article. In an interview published last week with a Farsi newspaper, the Iranian Deputy Minister of Information and Communications Technology, Amir Hossein Davi, said that the Ministry of Communications and Information Technology has already conducted a number of research studies as part of efforts to prepare the infrastructure to use Bitcoin inside the country. He went on to say, he went on saying the cryptocurrency has two aspects, economical and infrastructural. Quote, we as the main center in Iran dealing with the country's technology developments have taken very seriously the issue of preparing the infrastructure for the new currency. Quoted by the Iran front page, the Iranian official went on to say that such digital infrastructure is part of the soft power of each country and said entrance of the currency into Iran will end up in the general interests of the country. Quote, arrangements are being made with related organizations to put together the infrastructure as early as possible. What infrastructure? Like internet and exchanges? Well, it seems to me acceptance, right? Like acceptance. They're saying that... Not only do they want the country to be able to do it, but uh, like as an infrastructure choice, they want to be able to push payments themselves. So there's a thing called SWIFT, which is like an intra-bank payment network that Iran is not a part of. Um, I believe they're not out of, well, they're, they're very yeah. easy. They get removed from it often. And when they say the infrastructure, what they mean is that the integration into their payment networks so that banks could use this intra-bank as a SWIFT replacement is how I would read that. And I think the most interesting thing in this article is that they called Bitcoin a currency three times. Mm. Well, I mean, it deserves it. Why not? It is a currency. I'm just proud of how um, forward-thinking our Iranian brothers and sisters are. <laughs> Typically don't put that sentence together, but in this context, it seems like the Iranian government seems to be perceiving technology in a more um, modern sense than maybe America. Yeah, it sounds like they've been squeezed and they're trying to think out of the box. That's right. They're looking for options. I mean, really, that's what it comes down to. And we see this over and over again, right, is that the people who adopted Bitcoin first, who was it? It was the ideological adherence and libertarian kind of uh, leaning folks. And then it was the criminals, right? It was the people who are least served by the existing system who adopt the new system first, see the value in it because they're unhappy with the way things are now. And Julia Assange. So WikiLeaks had a financial blockade, so they couldn't receive deposits from traditional banking. So they took all of their money and kept it in Bitcoin because they could use Bitcoin to send and receive to their their customers and clients. And Julian Assange just tweeted out, thank you, Chuck Schumer, for the 50,000% return. Exactly. I would like to point out that it's not always... Not everybody who isn't served by the existing system is a criminal. We shouldn't associate those two together. You said it's, Adam, you said it's like it's the criminals, those who are least served by the system. There are lots of people who aren't criminals who are not served very well by the system that I think would be interested in Bitcoin as well. Yeah, no doubt the criminals did latch on to Bitcoin as well. But it was also just disenfranchised people. Well, that's exactly my point, is that criminals are one of the disenfranchised groups. But you're right. I mean, I would say that libertarians who believe in, you know, strong money, like I think they're also pretty disenfranchised by the current system, too. So I, I totally agree with you. It's not to suggest that everybody is criminals, but it is to suggest that they are one of those groups that has the greatest incentive in the early days to use something simply because it will work for them where nothing else will. 
And so if we take that analogy and we carry it over to what's happening now with nation states, well, I mean, a lot of people consider Iran and North Korea to be criminal nation states. But what happened before? Did the fact that criminals used Bitcoin initially make it so that Bitcoin didn't succeed? Is it worse off than it was five years ago when that was true? No, arguably it made it more valuable. Right, exactly. It, it proved that it was useful. And then other people were like, oh, that was useful. And I could use that for legal things. That's kind of the repetition that I think we may be seeing here. It's a little too early to tell, but we've seen a lot of talk about kind of using the blockchain. Really, these are the first kind of countries. And I think, again, I don't think North Korea talks about it, but we've heard lots of stories about how they use computational power and electricity for mining, again, simply because it's a way to actually get around the sanctions that are put on them by the rest of the world and be able to generate some type of currency that they can't be forbidden from spending. So like it's it's those disenfranchised first people, now nations, states, but eventually that shifts and it stops being about them simply because the technology is so useful. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Episode 347 was sponsored by EasyDNS.com and featured content from Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin and featured music by Jared Rubens, plus The New Time. If you have any questions or comments, email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.